following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Looking this morning in Matthew chapter 5, this is uh, the rest of last week's sermon continued because I didn't get very far last week. Fulfilling the Law, Part 2. So we're going to be reading uh, from Matthew chapter 5, actually starting at verse 27, and then we'll come back up and pick up verse 17 after we read the passage. But let's read verses uh, 17, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 27 through uh, 48. You have heard it, said, it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Uh, we, we started uh, looking into this passage last Sunday, and if you, if you were here, uh, I, I, I don't want to re- review too much. If you weren't here, sorry. Um, but a lot of the background for this passage uh, we covered. Um, but it really comes out of uh, 
in, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus sets the, the background for these verses in, in verses 17 through 20. Um, and these verses really are full of all kinds of questions. I have, and as I read through it and study it and think how I'm going to communicate to this to you, I oftentimes have way more questions than maybe answers. And when it says things like, if you lust, you're going to hell, that, that just is kind of scary for me, and it should be really for all of us, that um, what Jesus seems to be talking about here is, is the path into salvation. And, and a, a casual reading, it would look like if you break any of these uh, rules, that uh, you jeopardize your own very soul. So these are uh, hard words to grasp. Uh, but uh, uh, we want to look at these and, and certainly understand them in the context of two big questions that Jesus is trying to answer or deal with here. And those questions go back into verses 17 and 20, where Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have not come to do away with the law but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus makes it clear here that he is upholding all the Old Testament law. And we talked a little bit last week about there's a lot of the Old Testament law we still don't keep. And that's because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He didn't come to do away with it, but to fulfill it ultimately in his own life, in his own person and being. And then he looks at two questions. And that's what I want to use to frame our context for today. Uh, In one of the questions, he says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you can't even get into heaven. So one of the questions in this passage is about salvation. He says, "Your, your goodness, your righteousness, your life has to be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. And you need to know that the Pharisees were known for their meticulous keeping of the law. They would work very hard to keep all the rules and regulations. And Jesus said, if that's the best you've got, you can't even be in the kingdom. So that is kind of shocking. How could we possibly do more than the Pharisees in terms of keeping the rules of the Old Testament? But Jesus also has another category of people. He talks about those who are great in the kingdom and those who are lesser in the kingdom who are not great. So here he's talking about people that are in the kingdom, but uh, there are different ranks. Some people are great in the kingdom, and some people are just barely there. They're like beggars in the kingdom of God, right? So uh, these examples that I just read, uh, these these laws, if you will, uh, address both of those questions. So what I want to do is kind of survey uh, somewhat quickly uh, these these uh, remaining six. We looked at anger last week. We want to look at the remaining five today. Uh, and then go back a little bit and see how Jesus applies them to those two questions of how our righteousness could exceed that of the Pharisees, but also what it means to be great in the kingdom. And my hope is that you're here this morning because, first of all, you want to be in the kingdom. Amen? You all want to be in the kingdom? 
You might be in the wrong place if that's not true. Uh, the idea is that, yeah, we want, God has a kingdom, and he's inviting us into it. So we want to go, how does that happen? How do we get into the kingdom? But then, once you're in the kingdom, are, you, you know, are we content with just being there and being a kind of a nothing in the kingdom? Or do we want to take advantage of all that the kingdom has? Do we want to obtain and have for our possession all that the kingdom of God brings with it? Do we want to be great in the kingdom to experience its fullness? Right? So let's start by uh, looking a little bit uh, at these, these five remaining areas. And uh, what Jesus does here, it looks at first face value that actually Jesus does abolish these commands. Right? When you read through them, in several places, Jesus actually says, no, don't do what the Old Testament says. Do something different. But as we look through these, we see that the main problem was not so much that Jesus was undoing or abolishing or turning over the law as much as he was interpreting it differently. Uh, he had a very different way of looking and understanding the law and interpreting it. And a lot of what he's doing is here is he's showing that the scribes and Pharisees understood the law wrongly. Uh, they interpreted it incorrectly. I love that now today with um, our, all this great technology we have, that uh, when we take photographs with our camera or with the phone, there are great options to upgrade yourself, right? In fact, my phone kind of does this automatically. I kind of, it kind of is annoying to me. I don't like it. But I take a picture of myself, and um, it makes me look a lot younger. It takes all the wrinkles off. It kind of gives me this glow. I glow, Right? And I know in real life, I don't, I don't actually glow. I know that. I've seen like pictures like, in the mirror without these filters. right? Um, and of course, we've got filters. We've got Photoshop. Um, so you can, you can fix all kinds of problems with yourself. Right? I can actually put hair back on myself. Like, that would be just super cool. Look, looked like I did a long time ago. Right? And, and the thing is, the way it works is it actually twists and manipulates the, the photograph. So like my phone, if I open up my picture setting, it actually has a, a setting, a button called Beautify. And I can push on Beautify, and it like, it like you can like narrow your face and make your eyes bigger so I can look like some kind of like cartoon character, right? Because that's supposed to be better. And so I can twist and manipulate and, and uh, artificially fix the problems. But, but it's artificial, right? I'm, I'm manipulating the, the, the truth. Um, well, the, the, that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing to the law. They were photoshopping it. Right? They were taking the law, and they believed that the way to get into heaven was to keep the law perfectly. That if they kept, if they could check off that they had done all the rules, that they deserved to enter the kingdom. Uh, now, they knew that nobody could do that perfectly, but, but they knew that there were sacrifices, there were ways to get forgiveness, but you, had to, you still had to be pretty much within the scope of the law. There, there were commands that if you broke them, you, you were done. There was no sacrifice. There was no command for those, those crimes, those sins. And so you had to be pretty careful. But, of course, they quickly realized how impossible this was. So what did they do? Well, they photoshopped the law. Right? They took it and they, they tweaked it and twisted it and manipulated it to make it something they could obey. So we see this later on when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, you know the commands. What are they? And he says, and he names them. He says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And, uh, and Jesus says, good, you do that, you're in, you're good. And what is, his, what is his response? He says, well, in order to justify himself, he asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? And you see, he's photoshopping the law. He's saying, well, I, need to, I can't love everybody. I know I can't do that. So I need to restrict, I need to squeeze the law into something I can obey. So the way I do that is I just basically disqualify everybody I don't love as not being my neighbor. Like, how convenient is that? It's like, I don't love you, but it's okay. You're not my neighbor. Right? I don't love you either. In fact, I don't really love anybody. Uh, I only have two neighbors, one on this side and one on this, that side, and they're both on vacation. So I'm good. Right? I'm good. Um, so, so, so Jesus, though, interprets the law very differently. He has a very different understanding of the law. And he does not see the law as a set of rules that can be checked off. But as I said last week, it really sets a direction for our life. It is about a lifestyle. And ultimately, he sees that the law must be interpreted through its, its original purpose and intention in why God gave the law. And so Jesus fulfills the law, not, not because he keeps some checklist, but because he fulfills the absolute highest intent and purpose of the law. And what was that purpose? Well, it was given by God to show God's own heart and glory and ultimately his love for the world. Right? To understand the law, you have to look at it not through Photoshop, but through the lens of God's love for the world. And unless you do that, you can't understand uh, what the law is about. The law is about the extreme love and goodness of God. And in fact, it's interesting, when Moses went up... Uh, Second time on Mount Sinai, not the first time he got the Ten Commandments, but the second time. You remember he broke the ten, the tablets and he, he uh, had to go back up and God had to rewrite them on, on the stones. And when he went up on the mountain the second time, he asked that he would see God's glory. So he's, get this, he's standing there with these stone tablets on which God is going to write the law. So this is very much connected with God's giving of the law. And, and as Moses is up there, uh, he God tells him to hide in the cleft of a rock and the glory of God passes by and God reveals himself. And this is what it says. As God passes by and reveals himself, he says, he says to Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Right, so God, uh, in, in the context of giving the law, tells his heart of compassion and love for the world. A God whose love is abounding, overflowing. Right? And, and that's the heart of the law. So, so Jesus takes some examples. And he picks examples for, for a reason. And it's important for us to understand that uh, he's not rewriting new laws. He's, he's addressing laws that were specifically a problem for the Pharisees and, and the scribes. Ones that they were misunderstanding and misapplying. And so we looked last week at, at murder. He says, you've heard it said that murder is wrong, and if you murder, you're worthy of hell. But I tell you, if, you're, if you have anger in your heart, you are just as guilty. And then he turns to a second one that's in a similar category. It's a great prohibition, something we are not to do. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, now, he picks that one because in, and I think he puts it right after murder. So he starts with murder. 
and then he goes to adultery. Because in, in Jewish culture, and in the hearts and minds of the Pharisees and scribes and most of Israel, probably the two biggest sins you could commit outside of all-out idolatry would have been murder and, and adultery. Like they were huge sins. And if you committed either of those, there pretty much was no hope for you. Uh, you were going to come under judgment, and you, you had forfeited the kingdom, and you were going into hell. Now, in our world, um, maybe we still hold murder at kind of that level. Certainly, we no longer hold adultery at, le- at that level, sadly. So for us, this would not have the same impact for us as it would for uh, a first century Jew. Right? Uh, we live in a world where adultery, where sexual immorality, sex outside of marriage, is kind of like cheating on your taxes. You know? It's probably something you shouldn't do, but not that big of a deal. Right? To us, it doesn't have this weight of, you committed adultery. You, are, you just sentenced yourself, condemned yourself to eternity under God's fiery judgment. Right? It doesn't have that connotation anymore. Um, I think it probably should. Right? And, and we'll see that when we see what Jesus says next. He says, you've heard, of, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. See what what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying uh, lust is, is, is is a sin on the same scale as how they would have seen adultery and it, it condemns you to judgment in hell. Right? It's that serious. And that's the point he's making here. And you see, the Pharisees had, had, had twisted this around. They photoshopped this law to say, well, if I don't technically commit adultery, it doesn't really matter what, I, what, I, what, what thoughts go on in my head or in my heart. Right? That's not actually sinning. So I can drool over a woman all I want. I can think all the most worst kind of thoughts about, immoral thoughts about her and about what I could do with her if I had the chance and that's okay. And Jesus said, no, no. He said, that is just as bad as adultery because you already have committed that sin with her in your heart. Right? In your heart. Um, so, so this is a serious thing. And uh, this, this for all of us uh, should, should be a, a matter of concern. And there's actually another way to uh, interpret these, uh, this verse. And some, some believe that what he's saying here is not if, if a man lusts at a woman, but you can actually translate these words to say if a man looks at a woman in a way that entices her to lust after him, he, he commits adultery. He causes her to commit adultery. So this is not just about guys or just about women. It, it goes both ways. about... Um, entertaining ideas and thoughts in our minds that are immoral, that are, uh, that are explicitly sexual, right? Um, we are sexual beings. And we are sexual beings, and God created us this way, right? He made us with the desire for sex. Uh, and it's not in it, the desire in itself is not sinful, in fact, being attracted to the opposite sex is also not sinful. It's actually a good thing, right? Um, God made us this way. 
And, and it's good because if God did not make us this way, the human race would have been extinct millions, you know, thousands of years ago, a long, long time ago. We would have stopped making new people. Right? So this is a good thing. Right? It's how the human race moves forward. Uh, and actually, even sexual attraction is not sin. Right? It's how God wired us. Don't pursue those things in a, in a way that God has ordained. And God has ordained that uh, sex be reserved for the covenant of marriage. And the reason is that sex is a very powerful thing. It is very powerful. And it, it needs to be exercised in the safety, the safety zone of a marriage where there is a committed relationship to another person. Because it's super vulnerable. You expose yourself in many ways, a heart and soul and, and body. Outside of that, uh, sex and, and is damaging. It's just damaging, right? And, and the world doesn't say that. The world says it's fine. The world says, well, it's just being what we are as human beings. But Scripture makes it very clear that uh, it brings heartache and brokenness and problems outside of marriage. And here's the reality. Um, uh, lust... Desiring somebody else sexually is ultimately, and here's looking at this through the, the lens of love. Right? That's what Jesus does. He's looking at these things through the lens of love. And here's the reality. When you look at somebody else with longing, with immoral desire, uh, are you looking at them because you're hoping and wishing for their best? Or is it because of something you want for yourself? Right? See, lust is ultimately using people or, or desiring to use people for your own selfish gratification with no care or concern for them. Right? That's, now, we call it love, ironically. We call it, well, you know, I, I think I'm in love, right? And I long for that person, and I want to um, do things with them that I know are immoral. Um, but ultimately, we, we're not doing it for their benefit, right? It is selfish. It is selfish. And it is using people for our own ends, um, so, so to be clear, just to help us with this one, uh, lust is not the first sexual thought or desire we have, but it's how we respond to it. Right? We are sexual beings, and when we see something that attracts us, uh, certain things trigger in our brain, and that's normal. But the question is, what do you do with it? Right? Do you think and fixate and obsess on how you would like to use this person for your own gratification? That's not love, right? That is not love. That is not caring for and being concerned about how you can help and serve and love that other person. It's selfish. And in the end, it is destructive. And so Jesus says, uh, and remember I said there's a, there's a sin, and then Jesus gives usually some kind of cure or calling that we're to change. And he says the cure for this is to rip out your eyeball and cut off your hand because it's better to go into hell, I mean going to heaven, maimed than going to hell with all your body parts. Um, now, I'm looking around, no eye patches. I'm thinking none of you have taken this literally, right? So either you don't believe this is true, or you, like most people, would say that Jesus is somehow 
exaggerating. He's using hyperbole, which he is, right? And, and the reason we know this is uh, hyperbole is that um, I'm telling you, I can lust with one eye as good with two, right? Uh, covering up one eye, does, I still see just as good, right? And so the problem is not going to be fixed by taking out one eyeball. Probably not even with taking out two eyeballs, right? Uh, it's not going to be fixed just by cutting off your hand. But, but what's Jesus' point here? The point here is this is serious, and if you don't want to end up in hell, you need to take drastic measures to deal with this. Drastic measures to deal with this. Maybe the modern, uh, the modern version of this would be if, um, if your computer causes you to view Internet porn, blow up your computer. Right? Maybe that's kind of the modern version, right? Much safer than cutting off your hand, for sure. Um, so that's, that's Jesus. He says, you need to deal with this seriously. Take extreme measures, not just with adultery, but even lust. Even lust, right? Um, and, and, and it says that Jesus uh, is the fulfillment of the law. Um, Jesus, and I'm going to kind of skip over this one briefly. We'll come back to it. But uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus never looks at any human being with an eye for how he can use them to his own end. Right? Uh, he looks at every human being with pure, perfect love. Right? He sees us through his eyes, and he never thinks, wow, I could sure take advantage of that person for my own self-gratification. I mean, he never does that. Um, it goes on, it talks about marriage and, and uh, divorce, and it's actually uh, under the same category. So in many Bibles, it's separated as a separate compartment, and I did as well. But notice it doesn't say, you have heard it said. Right? All these other ones begin with the phrase, you have heard it said. This time he just said, it is also said. Uh, and the reason is that both divorce and lust fall into the category of adultery. And so he says, um, um, Concerning divorce, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Um, there were, in, in Jesus' day, two large schools uh, among the Pharisees and scribes about the legality of divorce. One school said... Uh, the only time divorce was ever permissible was if there was a case of adultery. And the reason for that is adultery breaks the covenant of marriage. So if there's been adultery, the, the marriage is already broken. Right? The covenant bond of marriage has already been violated. But then there was another school uh, who took the, the, uh, a different approach. And they, they went back to De Deuteronomy chapter 24 where it talks about this. And in Deuteronomy 24, it says, If your wife, uh, if your fi wife finds no favor in your eyes, in other words, if your wife is not pleasing to you and you write her a certificate of divorce, right? And so they took the, they took the stance that, well, if your wife does anything that kind of irritates you, like, like if she burns your breakfast one too many times, and I'm not making this up. This is actually, they wrote this, right? There's actually written documents by the Hebrews that said, or by the Pharisees that said, if your wife burns your breakfast one too many times, you can divorce her. Right? Pretty harsh. Like, like it really took nothing uh, to decide, well, she's displeasing to me. 
Right? She's gained a little bit too much weight. Uh, her hair is getting too gray. She's got too many wrinkles. Um, she burned the breakfast one too many times. Blah, blah, blah. Whatever. You were just about, you had the right to divorce her. Uh, of course, Jesus, um, Jesus says no. He takes the more strict stance. He says no. Um, and, and Jesus doesn't spell it out here. And he talks more about it in, in chapter 19. So I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. Uh, but let's look at how Jesus himself fulfills this. How did Jesus fulfill? Um, we all know Jesus wasn't married, right? So how could Jesus possibly fulfill this command? Well, Ephesians 5.25-27 through 27 tells us how. Uh, in, in Ephesians, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself as a bride in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Um, to really understand this passage in, in, in Ephesians, uh, it's about marriage. It's about uh, loving our wives. But what's interesting here is Jesus, uh, Paul talks about Jesus giving himself to cleanse uh, his bride with water and to fix her up so she's without uh, spot or wrinkle or blemish. Um, how many of you have been to a wedding? Okay, most of you, right? How many of you were at your own wedding? Just checking. Okay, good. Glad you were there, right? And uh, I don't, I, I've done a lot of weddings, right? Being a pastor, I, I do a lot of weddings, right? And, and I, I, have, I have yet to be at a wedding where the bride comes down the, 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 the aisle and, and it's like, wow, you know, I don't think she took a shower, right? Like, I'm, like her face is dirty, right? And her dress, it's like, where did she get? Like, she went shopping at Goodwill. Like, her dress is all wrinkled, and it's got stains on it. Like, have you ever seen that at a wedding? Never. Ever, right? Uh, the bride takes great uh, measures to make sure she is showing the fullness of her beauty. Her dress is perfect. Her makeup is perfect. She's gone to great... And, and every wedding I've ever been at, the, the bride is, is splendor of beauty. But Jesus says here that his bride was not. Right? Why? Because his bride was guilty of adultery. She was not pure and blameless. And did Jesus say, I divorce her. Right? I have the right to divorce her because she has been an unfaithful bride and I throw her away. Is that what Jesus said to his church? No, he said, uh, I, I will cleanse her by the washing of water with the word. I will lay down my own life and I will pour out my blood so that by my blood the bride would be made spotless and pure. Right? Jesus accepts a, an adulterous bride, but he cleans her up himself. He clothes her himself in his own righteousness to make her a beautiful, fitting bride for himself. It's an amazing picture of Jesus who did not throw away his adulterous bride, but he married her. But he didn't marry her in her dirty state. He made sure that she was without spot or wrinkle. 
that she was holy and without blemish, that she was a beautiful bride. Um, so, so we are to be committed to our marriages. I think even if there is adultery, Jesus doesn't say here, well, if, if there's adultery, you, you, should, you should get a divorce. He's saying only in that case is it ever permitted. But what he's saying is that we should be committed to building strong, God-glorifying relationships even though we are sinful people. Right? That's what love does. Right? And he interprets this law through the eyes of love. Next example, he talks about making oaths. He says, again, you've heard it said that uh, to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Uh, making an oath uh, is equivalent to uh, making a vow. Right? And a vow was something that ultimately you, you were obligated to God before. And so the way this would work back in those days, didn't have a lot of paper. Uh, it was hard to v- validate or prove contracts. So vows were very important. Oaths were very important. So if you buy a camel uh, and you don't have the cash to pay for it all, you say, I swear an oath that I will give you, you know, 50 shekels for your camel. Right? I swear an oath, right? I promise, cross my heart, hope to die, pinky thing, whatever. You know, like we, it's like we do. You make an oath, right? Um, but Jesus says about that, he says, I tell you, don't take oaths at all. Don't take oaths at all. Uh, uh, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, by the earth, for it is the footstool, by Jerusalem, the city of the great king. Don't even take an oath by your own head, for you can't make one hair white or black. Right? Sadly, my hairs are growing whiter and whiter all the time. And there's just nothing I can do about it. Well, I guess the hairs die, but it's still white underneath. Right? Uh, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. What was this about? Why, sh- why shouldn't they make oaths? Right? Why shouldn't they make oaths? Well, here was the problem. The Pharisees, again, they're photoshopping these laws, right? And, and so remember when you were a little kid and you would do the whole cross my heart, hope to die, swear, pinky thing, you know, the whole, right? But like if you had your fingers crossed, what happened? Oh, I had my fingers crossed, right? I don't have to do it because I, I said it, but I didn't mean it, right? Well, the Pharisees had done this exact same thing. And if you swore by God, you were obligated. But they had this idea that the farther the thing you swore by, the farther away it was from God himself, the less binding it was. So, for example, if they said, I swear to you by Jerusalem, that was not binding. Right? You were off the hook. But if you said, I swear, I swear to you toward Jerusalem, that was binding. Okay, silly, right? Silly. And so, uh, oh, I said toward, not by. Ha, ha, ha. I don't have to give you your 50 shekels for your camel. Thank you. Right? And they were sneaky. They were manipulating each other. They were cheating each other. So Jesus says, forget the vows. Like If you're going to misuse the vows to this end, that you can use vows as a means of cheating people, you're misinterpreting the law. Love says, keep your word no matter what. Vow or no vow. Be people of such integrity that your word is true no matter what. Um, um, 
Jesus fulfills this in his own life. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, Jesus, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the, the earthly high priests, to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so Jesus gave his own life as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, God's word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is God's oath. It is his word fulfilled and his promise kept. Jesus said he would save us, and he did it in Jesus, right? It is his oath fulfilled. Um, next one, revenge, retaliation, getting even. Uh, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you take uh, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse from the one who would borrow from you. Uh, the first few commands have to do with negative prohibitions. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lust, don't harbor anger, don't make foolish oaths. Now Jesus switches to more positive things. Um, and here the, the, the command that they were twisting was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This law was given to protect people from excessive punishment when they were found guilty. And, and it was to be applied for criminals when they had murdered or stolen, that, that they didn't receive excessive justice. But the, the Pharisees had photoshopped this one. And they'd used it as a, a means to excuse them taking revenge on people they didn't like. Right? You've hurt me, I can hurt you. Right? Uh, but Jesus uh, understood that they so misunderstood that law. Um, and, but he doesn't just say, don't do that, right? You, you've misapplied the law. Instead, he, he takes it in a whole different direction. He says, I tell you, um, if somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, right? He says, I, I tell you, um, do not resist the one who is evil. Right? Do not resist the one who is evil. Uh, now, there, there are some problems with this passage, and we don't have time to go into them all. Uh, he's not, Jesus is not saying here that you never... ...your children. He's not saying turn the other cheek, okay? Um... Uh, the, the context of turning the other cheek is actually not even a violent blow. Uh, to slap somebody on the cheek was to insult them. We, we should never protect or defend ourselves. Uh, but what he is saying here is that um, we need to lay down our rights. Right? We should lay down our rights to show love and kindness even to the evil person. He doesn't mean here that these people uh, haven't done wrong or aren't trying to do wrong. 
But what he's saying is, instead of retaliating, we should respond with love and compassion. To the one who asks you to go a mile, go two. Back in those days, Roman soldiers could could conscript you for labor. So if they were carrying a heavy backpack down the road and they got tired, they could just drag you and say, hey, you carry my, my pack for up to a mile. And Jesus says, don't just take it one. Say, hey, I'll take it for you too. I will show love even to those who abuse and misuse me. Jesus fulfills this command in himself. He says, I have been crucified, Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Right? Uh, when we were Jesus, uh, Jesus loved us. Right? John 13, we won't read the passage, but Jesus says that when, he, when the fullness of time came, he got up with his disciples who were around the, the table and they hadn't washed their feet. And so Jesus got up and he took off his robe. He took off his status and position as a rabbi and as a teacher, as somebody important. And he took on the garment of a slave and he washed their feet. Right? Um, was it, did Jesus have a right to have his feet washed? Absolutely. He was the rabbi. He was the teacher. But he laid aside his rights and served. Right? Jesus says that's how you should be. Last one. We're almost done. Loving your enemies. Um, you have heard it said... You shall love your enemy and you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Um, you guys all know that Bible verse in the Old Testament, right? Love your and uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You guys know that verse? No, because it's actually not in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Old Testament does it say hate your enemies, right? But, but they had, again, photoshopped this command. They had photoshopped it. And they had come up with this idea that, well, yeah, I can love my neighbor, but I can hate people who are my enemies. It wasn't even in the Bible. And Jesus says, I tell you, love your enemies. Right? Pray for those who persecute you. Right? And, and isn't that what, uh, what God did for us? Uh, You see, what Jesus does is he sees the law and what the law truly is, what love requires us to do to show God's love, not what the law excuses you from doing, right? They wanted to find ways, loopholes in the laws to excuse them from really loving. But God says, no, the purpose intent of the the law is to love like God loves. And, And God loved his enemies, Romans 8, uh, 5, 8 through 10. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Uh, Jesus reconciled us to God when we were his enemies. God loved us when we were his enemies. So see, Jesus fulfills the law perfectly. 
Okay, so let me just close with a couple of thoughts of how we apply this. Does it mean we have to keep this law like this in order to get into heaven? Is that what he meant when he said, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees? Does it mean we have to love perfectly? But he he, uh, concludes this section by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your Father is perfect. Is Jesus saying, the only hope for you to get into heaven is if you perfectly love people all the time just like God does? If that's so, we are all in serious trouble, right? Because uh, one lustful thought, and you have brought on yourself the judgment of hell. You've disqualified yourselves from the kingdom and from eternal life. We are doomed. But praise God, that is not what he said, right? And so when we look at these when we look at this passage, when, and we, when we look at the law, what it should do for us, number one, is it should show us how, how much we have fallen short of God's standard. Right? Um, we are not good people. Outwardly, we may, keep, we may Photoshop the law to make ourselves look good. But inwardly, we have hearts that are full of anger and lust and selfishness and pride. We do not love God. And we certainly do not love our enemies. And you know, it's really easy to say this. It's really easy to say, like, I, like to th- I like to think, oh yeah, I would love my enemies. And as long as I don't have enemies, it's easy to keep that one. <laughs> but as soon as I have a real enemy, this gets really hard. Really hard, right? Uh, and it should show us that there is no hope for us of achieving this righteousness on our own. We all fall, fall short of God's standard. We cannot love like God, God does. But the good news is that Jesus did this. Jesus loved God with the fullness of God's love. He is the full expression of his love. And going to the cross was the proof of how far God's love would go. And, and so we are saved by the righteousness of Christ. Jesus' death on the cross did two things. One, it took away our guilt but secondly, it says that his righteousness is put on us. All, all that Jesus did right gets credited to me. Right? So we are right with God. We are in right standing with God because Jesus put his own goodness, his own perfection on us. And so when we, by faith, link our life with Jesus, we have the fullness of his righteousness. Right? Not only is our sin taken away, but all his, all his rightness, all his perfect keeping of the law becomes mine. And so when God looks at us, he sees us, uh, that bride who's spotless, without wrinkle, without blemish, who kept the law perfectly in Jesus. In Jesus. And and this should cause us to be overwhelmed by grace. We should see how, how daily we fail this, but how faithful God is to give us grace. Right? So, so we enter the kingdom through Jesus. Amen. We enter the kingdom through grace. But there's still the second question, how do we be great in the kingdom? Well, Jesus says clearly that we become great in the kingdom by doing this. By, uh, he says, therefore, whoever relaxes the least of these commandments and teaches, teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. So if you want to be nothing in the kingdom, then just say the laws don't matter. It doesn't matter how you live, right? You just put yourself at the very bottom in the kingdom, right? But uh, uh, whoever does these laws and teaches them 
will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Life in the kingdom means doing these commandments. And there's two wrong turns here. There's two ways we can kind of go in a wrong direction and then that misunderstanding this. The first is misunderstanding the law. It's essentially doing exactly what the Pharisees did. It's, it's turning into the law into legalism. And it's thinking that the law is a bunch of rules that I can check off. Um, the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, uh, they, they, they take this, this thing about oaths very seriously. Right? And they make it a rule. They say, I can't ever take an oath. And so if they are brought into a court of law and they're told, you have to swear an oath to tell the truth, they say, I refuse. Right? I can't do that. My religion will not let me do that. You see, they've misunderstood the law. Right? They are turning it into a legalism, not a way to show love. Right? Not a way to show love. And so they can say, well, hey, I've never been in court. I've never had to swear. I keep that law. I'm good. Right? And they miss the point. They miss the point. The point is, love always tells the truth. Right? Love means we, we're, uh, we're good for our word. Right? That's, that's essentially legalism. But the second turn, wrong turn is lawlessness. Now, when I first got saved, I became a great Pharisee and legalist. I misunderstood the law, and I tried to keep the law legalistically. Then God zapped me and showed me that that was not the way it was, and I came to understand the Bible that is about grace. And so I turned from a legalist to lawlessness. I was like, yay, the laws don't matter, right? But that's also misunderstanding the law, but it's also misunderstanding grace. And we think, well, the law is just a bunch of rules that apply to the Old Testament, and we don't need to keep them anymore. But Jesus makes it very clear right here. He says, no, you have to keep these laws. Do not lust. Do not hold anger in your heart. Do not trick people by twisting your words. Don't retaliate against evil people, but turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. Love your enemies. Right? Um, but but I, I threw all that out, and I thought, well, grace covers it all. Jesus... He took care of it, and so I don't have to worry about it. It doesn't matter how I live. See, those are both wrong terms. It does matter how you live. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, um, we need to understand grace, but we need to also pursue and strive for greatness by being sons of the Father. Jesus says, if you, if you do this, if you... Uh, um, love your neighbor and pray for your enemies, you will be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, you will take on His character and show yourself to be His children. Right? Um, we can't do this in our own power. Amen? But Jesus on the cross broke the power of sin over our life. So as we grab hold of the cross, we grab hold of a power to overcome these things. But we don't just put ourselves on autopilot. Right? Jesus said, if you have problems with lust, tear out your eye, cut off your hand, blow up your computer, deal with it, take it seriously. Don't just say, it's okay, Jesus died for all my sins, I'm, that's good, right? I, I'm under grace, right? It doesn't matter. That puts yourself at the, at the bottom of the kingdom, right? He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God wants to do this work in us, but we have to pursue it as well. 
And we have to dig in and strive to be the kind of people who, uh, who live like the Father, who love like Jesus did. Okay? Not keeping empty rules, but loving like Jesus did. Galatians, Paul says, I'll say it again. You know, I, I have died. I, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's the power to overcome sin. And the life I live uh, in the flesh, I, I, I no longer live um, by myself, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as his life fills me, uh, it, it should set me on a course of loving people like Jesus did. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you loved us and that Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment and expression of your law and your love. Uh, you loved your enemies. You, you took us when we were an adulterous uh, bride, but you, you made us whole and clean. You renewed and restored us with your righteousness. And Lord, may we not be content to, to just be bottom-rung people in the kingdom. Lord, we would have a heart to not only come into your kingdom through the righteousness of Christ, but to live as your children, to represent you as our Father with lives that are holy because of how we love people and how we love and honor you with our life. Lord, help us do this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.